Amen. Amen. What a great uh, testimony of God's uh, grace. Uh, Several years ago, uh, my sons and I were planning on meeting their grandpa in Hamilton to go ice skating at Dave Anderchuk Arena on the Hamilton Escarpment. Now, we made a, a mistake in arranging the plans with my dad because we plan to meet at a Tim Hortons. And I don't know how much you know about Hamilton, but if you ever want to organize a meeting place, you don't want to choose Tim Hortons because there's a Tim Hortons on every corner. In fact, normally on most corners, there's two Tim Hortons. And what happened was the, uh, the, the Tim Hortons that I thought I was supposed to meet my dad at was just 400 meters away from the Tim Hortons where my dad was actually waiting. And my dad doesn't carry a cell phone. And so we waited in the parking lot and waited and waited and waited. And then we thought, well, you know what, we'll just, we'll just go to the arena. And so We were sitting there in the car, and I could see in front of me the uh, exit onto the road to get to the to get out of the Tim Hortons parking lot and in and and head towards the arena. And I pulled forward, and then all of a sudden I heard this sort of like bang thump. The car rocked a little bit. You see, I thought that I just had a straight path in front of me, and because we had been waiting there for so long, I had forgotten that there was a curb in front of the car where I where I had parked, and that curb was actually a peninsula. And, and what happened is, as, as soon as I got up on that curb, I could no longer go any further. Uh, what ended up taking place, I, I really can't describe in words. Let me just show you a picture of what took place. And so this is, this is what happened to our car. Th- this was a peninsula, sort of a curb separating the parking lot from the drive-through. And I had got my car stuck on this curb. And the look on Jet's face, you can tell my boys are really young, but the look on Jet's face there just kind of tells it all. Now, because we were not on roadside, CAA had us very, very low on the priority list for getting help. And so we spent probably three to four hours in that Tim Hortons with three little boys. And every once in a while, you know, someone would come by and they'd look at the car and they'd be all puzzled trying to figure out what's going on. And then they'd see me sitting there and they said, did you see what that guy did? And I'm like, yeah, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. I was stuck. And there was nothing that I could do about it. As we come to this next section in the storyline of Scripture, we we, we come to the, the part of the story known as exile. The title for today's message is simply that, exile, when the people of God are stuck. When they're stuck in a foreign land. And I don't know about you, but for me, certainly, these days right now, I feel very stuck. When I think about uh, how to lead our church, when, when I think about how to lead my family, when I think about my own sort of personal motivations, my own struggles against the, 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 the fight against sin, I so often feel stuck. My friend Carl Whittingstall wrote an article recently called the, the reverse exile. We're kind of in reverse exile. The, the Israelites were stuck somewhere far from home. All of us are stuck at home. And we're going to dive into this story. Again, remember, this story is our 
story. That we, in, in, in many ways, know what it's like to live in the midst of exile. Let's orient ourselves in terms of where we are in the Bible. So remember, the Bible is, is organized categorically. The Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, then history, poetry, and the prophets. Now, we've been going through organizing these books uh, uh, chronologically. And so here's a massive overview of how all of these books uh, fit together. So let's go to the next slide. So you can follow the storyline there from Adam to Abraham and Joseph and the slavery in Egypt and Moses and wandering through the wilderness, Joshua, the days of the judges, the united kingdom, then the divided kingdom, which we spoke about recently. And now we're coming to the very end, the exile. And you can see the books of the Bible along the bottom. And we're going to begin today uh, by looking at the book of Ezekiel. Let me just show you one more diagram to show you how all of this fits together. So we finished off last week in 2 Kings 24-25, which is paralleled by 2 Chronicles 36 and Jeremiah 25-52. to And then you see the history books pause for about 70 years. The prophets pick up the story with Daniel and Ezekiel. And then we'll jump into Ezra and Nehemiah to round off the rest of this story. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. And what we're going to see as we study these text, we're going to see that God is more concerned with reshaping our hearts than he is with, with, with rebuilding anything physical. You see, as we're living in exile right now, the danger for us is to think that, man, if our church could just regather, or if I could just go back to school, or if I could just go visit my friends or my family, then everything will be okay. We think if we could just get the physical problem fixed, then everything will be great. But loved ones, here's the truth. Here's what the people of Israel needed to understand. And here's what I need to understand. Here's what we all need to understand. Is God is doing something bigger than the physical. He didn't just want to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. He wanted to reshape the hearts of his people. In fact, as we follow the storyline of Scripture, we look at all of the incredible miracles of God. We need to understand this. God's greatest work and our greatest need is the internal, invisible, spiritual transformation of our hearts. God's greatest work and our greatest need is the internal, invisible, and spiritual transformation of our hearts. So we start with the book of Leviticus. And if you're taking notes today, just jot this down. Or sorry, not the book of Leviticus, the book of Ezekiel. Uh, living in exile. That's point one. Living in exile. Exile. Look at Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the 30th year, that's probably Ezekiel, he's probably 30 years, years old at this point. In the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles, Ezekiel was living among the exiles by the Kebar Canal. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. This is taking place in 593 
B, C. Let, let's, let me just chart this on a bit of a, uh, a timeline uh, for you. This is an overview of the timeline that we'll be following today. Let's zoom in on it a little bit. Uh, the exile happened in three phases. The first one is recorded in Jeremiah 25. That's when Daniel and his three friends were taken to Babylon. Ezekiel came during the second phase in 597 BC, which is recorded in 2 Kings 24. And so we're going to be looking at Ezekiel's visions here. Now, the, the whole point of exile from Babylon's perspective is they wanted to prevent any sort of revolution or uprising among the people that they were trying to control. So what they did is they displaced all of the educated or wealthy or influential people and just moved them around. Not necessarily moving all of them to Babylon, but just moving them around so that there was no wealth, there was no leadership to lead an uprising to try to overthrow them. So Ezekiel is living among the exiles. This is when the Psalms were written. You know, the Psalm, by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down. There we wailed when we remembered Zion. These were difficult times. The people of God were stuck. And Ezekiel, in Babylon, has these incredible visions of God. Now Ezekiel is the most psychedelic book in the Bible. He has these visions of these wings and these wheels and these creatures that are moving to and fro. We, we, we see Ezekiel building a model city out of a brick and dirt and, and enacting a siege. You see, Ezekiel had a number of these visions before 586, before Jerusalem was, was completely flattened. Ezekiel laid on his side for 390 days. He cut off his hair and burned some of it and blew some of it away in the wind and then cut the other little bits up in fine little pieces. He carried around baggage to symbolize the exile. But Ezekiel had this incredible vision of the temple. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 9. Actually, let's start at verse 6. Ezekiel is, being, is, is, is having these visions of God. Now, this angelic being comes, grabs Ezekiel by the hair. I don't know what God would do if he needed to take me someplace. But spiritually, he grabbed Ezekiel by the hair and he carries him from Babylon through the air. And he has this vision of the temple. The temple is still, is still functioning at this time. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 6, And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, here in the temple. And notice this, God says, to drive me from my sanctuary. God is looking at what's going on in the temple, and he says, because of what's happening in the temple, I am being driven out of my dwelling place. Verse 7, it says, and he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. Ezekiel 8 verse 10 says, so I went and I saw, and there engraved on the wall and all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all of the idols of the house of Israel. 
Idolatry was not just something that was happening as, a, as an alternative to the worship of Yahweh, the one true in God. No, idolatry had become part of what was going on in the temple. The idols were not just outside or up on the hills on the far off altars. No, the idols were being brought into the temple and the worship of these idols was actually happening in God's sanctuary. And then Ezekiel sees something remarkable. Look at Ezekiel 11, verse 23. Chapter 11, verse 23. Ezekiel sees, he sees the glory of the Lord. It says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. The glory of the Lord. Remember, when the when the tabernacle was built at the end of Exodus, the glory of the Lord in the cloud came and filled the tabernacle. When Solomon built the temple, the glory of the Lord came. It was a symbol of God's presence. And now Ezekiel, having seen the idols in the temple, is now seeing the glory of the Lord leaving the temple, leaving the city, and going on a mountain outside of the city. Now he had this vision in 592 BC. Ezekiel's very precise about his dates when he's having these visions. And we know from 2 Kings that, and we know from uh, 2 Chronicles that the temple was then destroyed six years later in 586 BC. So let's bring our, let's bring our timeline back up onto our uh, screen here. So Ezekiel has a vision of God leaving the temple in Ezekiel 10 and 11. And then in 2 Kings 25, we're told this is the third phase of the exile, when the wall is destroyed, when the temple is destroyed. But then several years later, in 573, Ezekiel has a vision of a new temple, a vision of a new temple that God is going to create. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter, oh, sorry, Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. God gives us some theological insight in his interactions with Ezekiel to help us to understand what was going on. You see, the problem with idolatry was not just physical. It wasn't the proximity of the idols inside the temple that was the core problem. In Ezekiel chapter 14, Ezekiel's back in Babylon, and some of the elders of the people of Israel gather around him. And look at what God says to Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3. Ezekiel 14, 14 verse 3, he says, Son of man, these men have taken idols into their hearts. Not just into the temple, the real problem is that these idols have been taken into their hearts. Remember, God's greatest work and our greatest need is to do an inner work, an inner transformation of our hearts. God is not just concerned about returning the people to the land. He's concerned about returning hearts to the Lord. He's not just concerned about rebuilding walls and rebuilding the temple that's been destroyed. No, he's intent on reshaping the heart that has brought idols into it. And then God reveals to Ezekiel, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. He reveals to Ezekiel how he intends to do this, how he intends to cleanse his people from the idols that have defiled their hearts. The idols that have defiled my heart and your heart. Ezekiel 36 verse 25. 
God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Look at verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. Look at verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. God gives Ezekiel this incredible promise. Listen, the temple has been destroyed, and here's why. Not just because there's idols in the temple, but because there's idols in your hearts. But God says, I'm going to sprinkle you. I'm going to cleanse you with clean water. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to change your heart. And, and with that new heart, you will be able to obey and follow my rules. So then we get to the end of Ezekiel. Turn with me to Ezekiel 47. As I mentioned, he has this vision of this new temple. But there's a unique feature about this new temple. In, in chapter 47, verse 1, it says, Then he brought me back to the doors of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold. There's water. There's a river that flows out of the... the that, that wasn't, there's no river in Jerusalem. There was no river at the original temple, but this new temple that Ezekiel has this incredible vision of, this new temple has a river flowing out of it. Look down at verse 12. It says, and on the banks, on both sides of the river that's flowing from the temple, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit not fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because of the water for them flows from the sanctuary, from the temple. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. You see, the temple, remember the tabernacle, it was like Eden 2.0. There, there was a lampstand that looked like a tree. There was cherubim, a guarding. There were, there were, there were these pictures, these, these ornate uh, decorations of fruit trees. So inside the temple, it was like Eden. But now in Ezekiel's vision, Eden is flowing out of the temple. And the whole earth now is, is being restored to become a new Eden. Everywhere this river flows, these beautiful trees grow like the Garden of Eden. So Ezekiel has this incredible vision. While he's living in exile, someone else who was living at the same time, a contemporary of Ezekiel, was, was Daniel. Daniel was also living as an exile, and Daniel and his friends are such an example of what it means to be faithful even in the midst of, of, of exile. Great lessons for us in terms of living with integrity and holiness, standing out and being different in terms of their diet choices, in terms of not bowing down before idols, and some of them ended up in a fiery furnace, or, or not cowering to religious pressure and Daniel ended up in the lion's den. They, they took a stand. They lived for God. Even in the midst of exile, even though they were far from the promised land, they were still living according to the promises. They were still living for God. And that's how we need to live. Our world more and more, we are, we are living like we are in exile. We, we don't belong. This world is not our home, our culture. Is, is headed in the complete opposite direction. And we too need to take a stand like Daniel and his friends. Daniel was also greatly used by God to interpret dreams for the different kings at different times. And these dreams uh, uh, proved to, to predict the future and different empires that were going to, going to come. 
And Daniel was there when the Babylonian Empire was defeated. It's, it's right there in Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, is having this party and he brings in all of the gold vessels that used to be from the, from the actual temple in Jerusalem and they start drinking wine out of these vessels and they're having this big party and then a hand appears and starts writing on the wall. And Daniel is called to, to interpret what the writing says. And on that very night, Babylon fell. Babylon was defeated. And that, that happened in 539 B.C. And so with Daniel now, we begin to turn our attention towards returning home. So with Ezekiel we, we, and, and the beginning of Daniel's life, we learned how to live in the midst of exile, to be filled with hope. And then with Daniel, we start to see some momentum moving towards returning home, returning home. So if we, play, if we place uh, Daniel on our timeline, remember this is the overflow, overview timeline that I showed you. And let's just zoom in here a little bit on the section uh, focused on Daniel. So in Daniel 5, in 539 BC, Medo-Persia conquers Babylon. And now we come to Daniel chapter 9, where we see Daniel is actually reading Jeremiah. Part of living in exile is to read and know and study God's word. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah the prophet must pass but before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Remember, Jeremiah said to the exiles, you're going to be there for 70 years. So Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah right now. So he knows it, 70 years has got to be almost up by this point. So it says, then I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Look at verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Look down at verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Remember, this was predicted all the way back in Leviticus chapter 26. It was predicted again in Deuteronomy 30 that if the people of God turned away from the word of God, that they would end up in exile. So Daniel knew his Bible. He's reading Jeremiah. He's referring to Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. He's putting it all together. He's saying this is all part of God's plan and purpose. And so he starts to pray about it. You see, even though Daniel was able to do the math and think, well, it's just 70 years, so that's got to be coming really soon now. Daniel doesn't say, well, I'm just going to wait it out. I mean, it's only a few more years now until it becomes 70 years and we're going to head home. No, knowing the future, knowing what's going to happen didn't make Daniel complacent. No, it caused him to seek the Lord earnestly. 
So he, he prays, look at verse 17 of Daniel 9. He says, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. He prays that God, God, rebuild the temple, your sanctuary. It lies desolate. It's destroyed. And while Daniel is praying, God answers him. He sends the angel Gabriel to come and to comfort him and to encourage him. And then Daniel gives a, a specific answer to his prayer. Or sorry, Gabriel gives Daniel a specific answer to his prayer. Daniel was zeroed in on this 70-year period. And then Gabriel says to him, look at Daniel 9 verse 24. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and the holy city. Seventy weeks. Now, a week is a seven, uh, a, a period. We think about weeks as being seven days, but uh, it's just a, a group of seven. And what Gabriel is saying here is that, listen, you're concerned about waiting for 70 years. Actually, it's going to be 70 weeks, 70 weeks of years. You're concerned about 70. I'm actually telling you it's going to be 70 times 7. Like 490 years. Far longer than you ever expected. And look at what Gabriel says is going to happen. 70 weeks, 70 times 7 are decreed about your people and your holy city. Notice this. To finish the transgression. To put an end to sin. And to atone for iniquity. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. These were all things that were prophesied that would be dealt with. Remember in Isaiah chapter 53. Notice this, to bring everlasting righteousness and to seal up both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Gabriel says, listen, you want to get back to the city? Yeah, that will happen in 70 years. But listen, in 70 times seven years, something far more significant is going to happen. It's going to take longer because remember, God is more concerned about reshaping our hearts than he is about replacing us in a particular geographical location. God's greatest work and our greatest need is an inner transformation of the heart. That's what Gabriel is getting at here. Finishing transgression, putting an end to sin, atoning for iniquity, bringing everlasting righteousness from the inside out changing the heart. He's, he's talking about the coming of Christ and what Christ would accomplish on the cross. So Gabriel appears to Daniel, gives this incredible promise, not, not just that you're going to return to the land physically, but that something is going to take place. And we can't get into the details and the minutia of Daniel 9 specifically, but what Gabriel promises here is incredible. That there's going to be something that's going to happen at the heart level that's going to result in forgiveness for sin and everlasting righteousness. And then in the, the very next year, Cyrus, king of Persia, makes this decree. It comes out of nowhere. And let's, let me show you back again on that timeline. And uh, Sorry, let's go back one, uh, one slide. So Daniel reads Jeremiah. And then in 538 BC, in 2 Chronicles 36, it's also in the book of Ezra, Cyrus makes this decree that the city of Jerusalem is to be rebuilt 
and he's going to manage the project. He's going to fund it all. So now we're going to turn back in our Bibles, back to the history section, to the book of Ezra. Turn with me to the book of Ezra. Now, I'll let me show you where Ezra is plotted on our timeline here. Let's go to the next slide, please. So we just covered Ezekiel and Daniel down in the prophecy section. We're moving up now to the book of Ezra, which begins with Cyrus's decree. So we're in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of the the, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Loved ones, this makes no sense apart from God stirring Cyrus's heart. In fact, Isaiah named Cyrus by name hundreds of years before Cyrus ever walked the earth, before Babylon was a thing, before Medo-Persia was a thing. Isaiah said, someone named Cyrus is going to be used by God to have the people sent home. And he sends them home to rebuild the broken. If you're taking notes today, that's our third point, rebuilding the broken, rebuilding the broken. So here we are in the book of Ezra. Look with me at Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10. The book of Ezra records two major phases of exiles returning to the promised land. The first group of exiles was led by a descendant of King David, one of the offspring of David named Zerubbabel. And they get the ball rolling in terms of temple reconstruction. When we come to Ezra chapter 3 verse 10, it says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Now, if you compare Ezra chapter 3 with 2 Chronicles chapter seven. Here is the temple being rebuilt. And Second Chronicles 7, that's when Solomon had the temple built initially. Same thing. Priests wearing vestments. Priests playing trumpets. They sing the same song. For you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. It seems as though, is history repeating itself? Is this going to be a glorious time where God is going to come in the cloud? Remember in Ezekiel, the cloud left. Is the cloud going to come back? Loved ones, the cloud never comes. The cloud doesn't come in that moment. Ezekiel 3 is almost word for word what takes place in 2 Chronicles 7, except there's one thing missing, the presence of God, the glory of God. 
But some people are still enthusiastic. Look in the middle of verse 11. It says, And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of his house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. Listen, there were some there who knew. They knew the glory of the old temple. They knew that God's presence was there. They knew what Ezekiel saw. They knew that this is not it. They have returned physically. They have rebuilt the, the temple. The, it's all right on the outside, but something on the inside is still missing. Look at verse 13. So the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. Some people were so excited, but some people were just weeping. Loved ones, it's like that every time that we gather, isn't it? It's like, I mean, even right now in, on an online service, there's some of you right now who are listening and enjoying what's being said, and you're growing in the Lord, and you're seeing Him at work, and you, you want to shout for joy for all that God is doing in your life. But then others of you, you're just weeping. You're so broken over what has been happening in our world or what's happening in your life. We, we're all coming together. We're all listening to the same service. We're all singing the same songs. We're all hearing the same sermon. But some of us are shouting for joy and some of us are weeping. Because even for us, just like for these people returning from exile, it's not perfect. God's work is not done yet. It's not complete. We're still in process. And loved ones, that's where we find ourselves today. There was no cloud. There was no glory. So this first wave of exiles returned. They build the temple. They get it finally finished in Ezra chapter 6. And then Ezra chapter 7, this is when Ezra enters into the story. Ezra 7.10 says that for Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. We have an Ezra in our family and this is the prayer that we pray for him, that he would study God's word, that he would do it and teach it. And by God's grace, he is growing in all of those things. Now, Ezra had a contemporary named Nehemiah. Now, these two couldn't be any more different. When Ezra responded to the sin of, uh, the, sin of the people around him, he pulled out the, the hair of his own beard. When Nehemiah saw the sin of the people, he pulled out other people's beards. And Ezra was there for many, many years and could never get the wall rebuilt. And Ezra, or sorry, and Nehemiah showed up and he got it built in, in, in a couple of months. These two were so different and yet they complemented one another so incredibly. So turn with me to the book of Nehemiah and find chapter 2. So Nehemiah and Ezra, really, they're really just one, one book explaining these multiple phases of the return to exile. There were three phases of the initial exile, and there were three phases in the return of the exiles as well. So Nehemiah shows up after traveling 770 kilometers, after getting permission from, from Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to, uh, to rebuild the temple. Sorry, to rebuild the wall. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? 
how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And as, ne- as Nehemiah unfolds, just like in the story of Ezra, there was lots of opposition to rebuild the temple. In the book of Ezra, there's lots of opposition to rebuild the wall in Nehemiah. But the wall gets completed. Now turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. And in verse 1, it says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. The wall is built. The temple is there. Everything seems to be in place. Now the people ask. They want. They're hungry for the word of God. They tell Ezra. Remember, Ezra is living at the same time as Nehemiah. They tell Ezra, bring the book. Read to us the book. And so they have a Bible conference that goes on for multiple days. Look at Nehemiah 8, verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is is the, the core text to explain what my purpose in life is, is to read from the book and to read it clearly and to give the sense so that hopefully the people understand. I hope you're understanding. There's only four people in this room right now. I'm not seeing any nodded heads, but hopefully you're understanding what I'm saying. I can't wait to see you all face to face so I can know, do you understand what I'm talking about? But this is the aim, to read the book, to read it clearly, to give the sense so that the people would understand. And then if you keep reading in in Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah encourage them to say, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. They rejoice because they understood the word of God. And then in that joy, they have a covenant renewal ceremony. They've read the law. They know how their ancestors have disobeyed the law. They know that they themselves have been guilty of disobeying the law. And so they lay out really under three categories. Here is how we will obey the law. You can turn there in your Bibles to Nehemiah 10. I'll show it to you here on the screen. It fit in three categories, marriage, Sabbath, and tithing. In terms of marriage, they said, this is right from the text, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. For the Sabbath. And if peoples of the land bring in goods on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath. And then tithing. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits to the house of the Lord. As the story unfolds, a little bit of time goes goes by. Nehemiah goes on a couple of visits, a couple of trips. He's away from the land. He comes back in Nehemiah chapter 13. And this is what Nehemiah finds in the 13th chapter of his book under these same three headings, under marriage. In those days, this is Nehemiah writing, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. They said they wouldn't, and yet they did. Sabbath, Tyrians, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. The people promised, we will not buy any, any goods from foreign merchants on the Sabbath. They promised, and they didn't. Tithing. 
I also found that the portions of the Levites, that's who the tithes went to, it went to the Levites, had not been given to them. Again, they promised, they renewed the covenant, and yet they still failed. They made all of these promises. Yes, we will obey. Now, for sure, after everything our people have been through, from Mount Sinai to the golden calf, to the days of the judges, to the, to the ups and downs of the kings of Israel and Judah, and we've been in exile, and now we're back, and even though all the opposition and rebuilding the temple, now we've learned our lesson. Now we will obey. Fail, fail, fail. You see, the people were back geographically. They were on the map politically. But they hadn't returned to the Lord spiritually. They were stuck. They weren't just stuck in exile in a faraway land. They were stuck in their idolatry and in their sin. And they had no hope of changing things on their own. They needed God. They needed God to make the change. They needed God to do what Ezekiel promised he would do. Remember what Ezekiel said. I'll show it to you here on the screen. Ezekiel said, I will sprinkle clean water in you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. That's what's needed. God's greatest gift and our greatest need is the new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. The people in Nehemiah's day were not careful to walk in God's statutes. They, they, they did not follow God's rules. They still needed a new heart. Loved ones, we need to understand this. We need to understand that as we think about the own exile where we find ourselves in, that even, if, even as much as we look forward to regathering together as a church family, even as we look forward to COVID-19 restrictions being lifted and us being able to see one another again and go visit family and go visit friends, loved ones, don't fall into the trap that just because things change physically in terms of proximity, that that's going to solve everything. Loved ones, God's greatest work and our greatest need is an inner transformation of the heart. The people had returned to the land, but they hadn't returned to the Lord. What the people needed was a new heart, and that was something that only God can do. And that was prophesied by Ezekiel, and loved ones, that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ who in John chapter 7 says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Remember, idols in the heart. The new temple, the new temple flowed with water, and then Jesus says, out of your heart, our heart is supposed to be a temple. Our heart is supposed to be the place where the presence of God dwells and from our hearts just like the new temple in Ezekiel 48 from our hearts would flow rivers of living water that was the only hope for the people in Nehemiah's day that is our only hope is to have a new heart a heart 
that is a, a dwelling place, a heart that is the temple of the living God, and that from our hearts would flow these rivers of living water. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book. We thank you that your main concern for us is not what we're doing on the outside, but what is happening on the inside, what is going on in our hearts. Our Father, we thank you that the promises that were made in the book of Ezekiel to have our hearts cleansed with water, to have our hearts made new, we thank you that they have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We thank you that the promise that Gabriel made to Daniel to, to end transgression, to atone for iniquity, to deal with sin, and to bring everlasting righteousness, we thank you that those have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray, God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would help me to live in accordance with the new creation that you have made me, and that you would help every brother and sister that is a member of this church family, Lord God, or anyone that is listening, that we would all indeed live in such a way that brings honor and glory to you, that we would live in such a way recognizing that you have changed and transformed our heart from the inside out and that from our heart would flow rivers of living water that would overflow on the banks and that would spread into our family and our church and our neighborhood and to the ends of the earth, Lord God. So Father, make it so we pray. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.